And I think if it comes to being, you know, a, a hybrid office, fully remote, I think the most important thing is about being intentional about the culture that you're building and setting a strategy around that. Coming up on today's show, we are exploring the world of finance and high growth in technology-enabled startups. And we're doing that with the help of Annalisa Dragic from Sapphire and Dr. Anna Snader from Patchwork. And I think if there's a couple of messages to come strongly out of this podcast, it's about being intentional and it's about paying attention to other people's playbooks, but knowing that your own playbook is individual. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast hosted by myself, David Savage, powered by Nash Squared, where we bring you the latest ideas and thoughts from leaders across our industry. Joining me this morning, we're recording on on Friday, but joining me this morning is uh, Akish. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. You're right. I feel like that was quite low energy there. We're not used to recording yeah, yeah, yeah. at 8.30 in the morning. Apologies, good. listeners. Um, right. It's a bank holiday Monday uh, coming up this weekend. It's a long weekend here in the UK, hence us deciding to record a couple of days early ahead of it going out on Tuesday. But um, Akish has just got his coffee. I'm obviously still waking up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 thought, I thought you would have... Um, I thought you would have you know gone for a run and you know all those sorts of stuff little circuit workout i thought you'd be i'm, I'm doing some i'm gonna do a workout in a bit i uh i got i got to drive up to northumberland today so uh mm. make sure i got plenty of sleep for before the eight hours in a car to be fair i think you probably join a lot of the other people commuting out of the south right here's a great question akish go on you got tiktok nope <laughs> Probably a good thing. No, I, I have TikTok. I like TikTok. It's a good way of wasting time. No, and sometimes we put out some videos on there for uh, potentially some of our long, younger listeners. Yeah. Um, but no, TikTok has the ability to track every tap on your screen whilst you browse in its iOS app. God, I'm glad I've got Android. Including typed passwords, clicked links, according to research by software engineer Felix Krauss. In-app browsing references any, third, uh, any activity on third-party sites that open in the app rather than just an external window. Um, cool. massive security concerns there given the uh, amount of users yeah and uh, what, what's that thing they can they can see everywhere where you tap so like whether you tap on like the left of the screen or the right or so, up and down that sort of thing so it can track users every tap as they visit other sites through the iOS app oh. including collecting passwords so is that like is that like when there's paid adverts and stuff like that that you go via I guess so, but quite often if you just click on a link when you're in an app, it'll take you to, but you're still technically in the app, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. Wow. Bad, man. That is, uh, yeah, I mean, that is a security breach. And a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of influencers that obviously get a lot of money by partnering up with these brands, um, they might get affected by that, but... There you go. We need to we need to speak to Jim Tiller about that one, don't we? Well, I thought I'd I thought I'd mention it because obviously we've got security bites going out on Friday now on the on the stream. But also, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jim telling us that everyone's personal information had been stolen several times over. Yeah. Um, that's how you know when you hear that when someone says everyone's information has been stolen every single you know every time over, people are going really. Mm. There you go. Yeah, we need to. It's f- it's stuff like that. Throw that one to Jim. Let's see what he has to say on security bites. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Right. Anyway, I thought I thought that would be a, a, an interesting little note, but you haven't got TikTok, so you're fine. Don't worry about it, mate. That's all right, mate. <laughs> um, our two guests today, Annalisa Dragic and Anas Nader. Annalisa uh, is uh, from Sapphire. We're going to be talking about Sunicorns. And then later on in the show, Dr. Anas Nader, CEO, co-founder of Patchwork Health. So plenty of good stuff to dive into today. We'll hand over to Annalisa. So today I'm talking to Annalisa uh, Dragic from Sapphire. How are you this morning? Or this afternoon, actually. What am I on about? It's four, quarter past four in the afternoon. So this morning is a is a real mistake. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. We're having a little bit of heat wave here in London. So trying to trying <laughs> to stay cool, but otherwise enjoying uh, summertime. I think I'm going to blame the heat on me thinking that it's morning. <laughs> I'm clearly going delirious. Um, just... Before we get into anything else, do you want to tell me what you do for Sapphire? Yeah, so I'm a partner with Sapphire Ventures based out of our London office. I joined Mm -hmm. the firm about two and a half years ago now to help kind of set up and establish our London office. And I help lead our team now of 10 people here and focus on investing in super ambitious founders and entrepreneurs out of Europe and Israel, mostly focused around 
B2B companies, so business to business startups, and do that at kind of the growth stage. So more Series B into pre-IPO. This might sound like a really silly question, but obviously you've set the office up in London. You're looking at investment in Europe and, and Israel. How do you define Europe? Obviously, it would sound like the UK is still very much part of Europe as far as Sapphire is concerned. Yeah, so we pretty much pan Europe. So we're really looking everywhere and anywhere across the continent um, to back the most ambitious, best founders that we can. So of course, um, when I started with Sapphire and it was March 2020, and that was in the COVID fun times we'd all been having, it was a lot of Zoom calls and not necessarily mm -hmm. knowing where founders and teams were, but now more common getting on planes to many different countries and trying to get to know and partner with the best founders, no matter where they're located. Obviously, as you've referenced there, March 2020 was a was an interesting time. Um, I remember the narrative very much being that there was still investment, but it was flowing to quite traditional safe bets. Um, you were looking for innovative, interesting B2B software companies in Europe. Where, where did you see the money flowing to at that time and how has that perhaps changed? Yeah, so when I joined Sapphire, as I mentioned, um, March 2020, we were entering into this phenomenon of COVID that no one had experienced before. And so I think in the investment world, there definitely was this moment of pause and trying to understand what does this mean for us, for how not only from a markets and financial markets perspective of what the impact for this but also for the business and how we invest, right? And are we able to give 50 million or plus to, to a company that we've never had a chance to meet in person before? So there was definitely adjustment period um, happening at kind of the beginning of, of COVID. Uh, I, but I think in general, very quickly, investors got comfortable with meeting founders over Zoom, learning about exciting companies, and if anything, I think what we saw in 2021 was investments happened quicker and the pace increased. Um, and I think it was it was quite an exciting time. I mean, in Europe was record number of dollars going into the ecosystem. Um, and so I think from that perspective, there was obviously challenges that COVID brought, but there was a lot of tailwinds for tech industry in terms of digital adoption and catalyzing uh, different technologies to be used at an increased rate that had positive impacts as well. You've just um, published the Sunicorns report, um, which is the, let's make sure I frame this right, is it the 100 um, top startups, tech businesses in your, in your eyes, B2B businesses across Europe, across 32 European countries? Yes. So we did this in partnership with Sifted and we looked at kind of what we call the rising 100 B2B unicorns. So companies who have not yet reached a valuation of $1 billion, which in kind of mm -hmm. the venture capital world has been coined the term unicorn. So for us, it's really those exciting companies that have reached um, some scale and growth not quite yet um, have been crystallized as a unicorn and are focused, as you said, in the B2B sector. The, the, the list um, shows strong representation from places that you might imagine, the UK, London, uh, Germany, France, uh, you know, Paris and Berlin. London obviously has a kind of a heritage when it comes to startups around fintech and finance. Um, other countries have their strengths. Well, but is, is that the pattern that you're seeing in, in, in amongst those 100 companies? Are you seeing there being emerging sectors that are, that are slightly more interesting or is it following those traditional patterns? Yes, I think in Europe you have both geographies and you have industry sectors as well, right? And I think some of the findings from the report Probably not surprising, as you mentioned, what we saw is a large number of these rising 100 companies were coming out of mm. the UK, out of France, out of Germany, which have been kind of traditional tech hubs. Uh, so not surprising there. I think, though, we saw exciting companies across the continent, and we already have 65 different cities in Europe who have 
a unicorn. So a company, a, a tech startup who's already valued at a billion dollars or more. So even though we see a concentration within hubs around the UK, France and Germany, I don't think there's any constraints in terms of geography where you can build a global leading business. So that's kind of on the, the geography side. I think on the sector side, you know, we were looking at B2B, so business to business companies really across different sectors. And I think we saw a, a quite a, a variety. I mean, we spend a lot of time at Sapphire looking at enterprise software companies, be that within the infrastructure layer, be that more within business and the application layer, as well as fintech. And we definitely saw all three of those reflected in the report as well. So what are some of the most interesting innovations that you're seeing at the moment? I think one is definitely around the future of work. And part of that is connected to COVID and different adaptations that both companies and employees have had to make when we kind of overnight had to shift to the working from home and Zoom world. And now we're kind of going back into more of a hybrid working world. Um, we're definitely seeing a lot of exciting innovation coming out of Europe in data infrastructure, data tooling. I sit on the board of one of our portfolio companies, Matillion, which is based out of Manchester in the UK, which is a cloud-based ETL provider. So extract, transform, load, very much data core infrastructure software. We're seeing a lot, a lot of exciting um, companies pop up there. Another area we've spent time looking at uh, more recently is all around kind of what we're calling B2B sustainability software. So software tackling kind of carbon emissions management, more kind of use cases around net zero and, and climate change, which I also see Europe definitely leading from a global perspective. Just out of interest then, from this future of work perspective, you mentioned that there are 65 cities with a unicorn. When I when I talk to startups now, especially, kind of, I know post-pandemic is not necessarily accurate, COVID is out there, but certainly post-restrictions, organizations are beginning to kind of cut that umbilical cord with a fixed location. A lot of startups are beginning to say, we'll have remote teams and we'll get together for a conference. We'll come together and we'll, we'll spend a week together in Lisbon, for example, for mm -hmm. Web Summit. Does that risk damaging this idea of communities and hubs because I th I've always found that one of the strengths of say a city of Manchester is that you kind of have meetups and you have a community and it gets together but if if we're moving away from that then maybe we'll, we'll lose some of that. I think we're definitely moving away or have permanently moved away from this concept of working from an office five days a week at least in in the tech sector and I think if it comes to being you know a hybrid office, fully remote. I think the most important thing is about being intentional about the culture that you're building and setting a strategy around that. I think looking at the data and, and, and going back a bit to what we saw in these 100 rising B2B companies, only three of them self-identified as fully remote. 97 of them had a headquarters and a home office. They may have you know, an office in Prague, an office in London, an office in the US. So maybe they're more distributed with multiple offices, but they're not yet going into a full remote workforce where everyone is working from home. And I mm -hmm. think exactly to your points that people still crave community. They still crave social interaction, being in the office together. And I think when you're building a high growth company and also recruiting and hiring a lot of new people building in an office where you can be together, learn from your peers that you're sitting right next to just in more of an osmosis kind of learning mode of picking up things and observing is important and, and helpful. But again, I'd go back to, I think it's being intentional about that mm. and setting some strategy uh, around that is, is most critical. And, and how are you, I mean, it sounds like there's an element of, of the answer here to this question in, in what you've just said around being intentional and strategy, but how do you advise, I suppose, the founders and the startups that you're working with to feel plugged in and to feel part of a community where they can get advice from other founders, where they can lean on each other? Yeah. So, I mean, this was a, 
a big thing that Sapphire did even at the beginning of COVID, right, is, is kind of bring our CEOs and management teams even closer together. We do have a portfolio growth team at Sapphire, which works very closely with our CEOs and management teams. And within that, we have a sub team that just focuses around talent and people. And I can tell you at the very beginning of COVID and even now, they're very, very busy because a lot of these challenges were first time challenges, even for experienced and seasoned CEOs. They weren't quite sure, right, how to continue to build community and culture in a virtual or hybrid environment when you're scaling a company so quickly, you could be doubling or tripling headcount year over year and continuing to want to build a very, very strong, a very, very strong culture. So I think part of that is having a peer community that you can lean on. I think another part of that is having strong people operators at your company, having a chief people officer, head of people who's very experienced and that this is their core responsibility and role to be able to lead on on a, on a day-to-day basis is, is critical for these young and growing companies. Look, as, as we've mentioned, the uh, the Sunicorn report does mention a lot of places that you'd expect it to mention. Again, we refer back to the fact that you've mentioned there are 65 cities with a unicorn. Um, where's not getting the attention it deserves? Are there any are there any interesting hotspots that are emerging there where you kind of go, ah, that's the next that's the next Lisbon or that's the next you know Tallinn or wherever it might be. Yeah, I think maybe two. Um, one which I do think it's a lot of attention, but I'm personally seeing a ton of exciting startups and entrepreneurs emerge from is France and the Paris ecosystem. I think if Mm -hmm. you look a little bit more historically, you've seen entrepreneurs um, in Paris and maybe France more broadly be very much building for France and that environment. And now more and more, I'm seeing entrepreneurs who have real global ambitions, don't even want to just build a pan-European business, but want to build the leading business globally, which I think is super exciting. And for us sitting here in in London, it's super easy to get on the Eurostar now that we don't have any travel restrictions and go down for a day trip and, and meet with French entrepreneurs. And so I think there's definitely this kind of tech renaissance, so to say, happening in France. And it's really exciting to to witness this from the investor seat. I think also when you look at Central and Eastern Europe, of course, right now we have the war in Ukraine, which is having some very devastating impacts on that region. But I think there, there's a lot of very, very strong technical talent. And by that, I mean, engineering and product talent out of that region. And I think a lot of times that's uh, that's a region that's in some ways overlooked or seen to be more of kind of outsourcing hub where you can, you know, be able to hire kind of more low cost talent, so to speak. But I think there, there's a lot of exciting entrepreneurs who are seeing the outcomes of a UI path for example, and beginning to dream a a bit bigger. And so I think in the years to come and after hopefully uh, the conflict in Ukraine is is resolved, I'm very excited to see kind of what comes out of the the broader region. One of the um, statistics that is unfortunately difficult to ignore is that only six of those 100 organizations have female CEOs. You yourself... um, were just 29 um, last year when you became one of the youngest female VC partners in Europe. Obviously, the, the sector needs to be more inclusive and not just across gender, but across uh, across all minority groups. What would you say as a, as a VC to founders, to, to um, would-be entrepreneurs who are from a minority community or background about engaging with the VC community and, and, and attracting the finance that they need to try and fuel their growth? What what are some simple kind of ideas or, or suggestions that might help them make sure that they do get that finance? Yes. So I think, as you said, only six out of the 100 companies had a female CEO or co-CEO, which I was quite disappointed by. I wish that number was 
50-50 or even higher. And I am hopeful that we will see this improve and increase in, in the years to come. I think the reality of the industry and the ecosystem right now is that my underrepresented founders, be that from a gender perspective, sexual orientation, ethnicity, disability, what's not, they do face conscious or unconscious bias from investors. And I think that's that's quite unfortunate. And so I think, you know, my advice to founders as they approach kind of thinking about raising outside capital is making a concerted plan, figuring out who are the best investors for the stage of my business to partner with, building relationships, because at the end of the day, I think the venture community is very much rooted in personal relationships and finding someone who you can work very much well with and is aligned with the long-term vision that you're trying to build and to stay confident and not give up. I mean, having myself not having been in the founder seat and and having to go out and, and raise capital, but having very close female friends who have been there is you get rejected a lot. And there's a lot of high highs and a lot of very low lows. And I think it's um, my biggest advice would be to continue to just stay determined and continue to stay confident in yourself. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you today. Thank you for uh, for freeing up some of your, your calendar to, to join us on the podcast. I'm actually over in Paris in early October, so I might have to find out if you've got any suggestions for, for future guests for the show. But uh, again, thank you for your time today. No, thank you. I think there's some stuff in here that you're going to have all sorts of opinions on, especially when it comes to um, potential unicorns, high growth businesses and in office, work from home, mm. work in the office culture. Mm. Um, I thought it was really interesting given the, the show that we put out last week, which Amber co-hosted with me on, um, where we talked about int- being intentional in your culture. That was PayPal. Mm. And here's Annalisa. The most important thing is being intentional about your culture. Mm. Strong words. Very, very strong words. I think, yeah, it just, it just it resonates with... I guess what they're trying to drive, but also within an organization like theirs, right there, <clears throat> they need to have a culture which, which drives cult, not just their own internal culture, but would, which would also drive their customers culture to a certain extent. You know, they, they, they have to have an element of, um, kind of skill and, and they have to have an element of, you know, kind of, I guess the, the, the culture, or the behaviours that they look to employ, because that will then have a knock-on effect on their clients, right? And, well, yeah, I mean, later on the show, she talks about the, you know, when, she, when we're talking about minority communities and VC mm. funding, she talks about making a plan and finding out who is best, who aligns with you, yeah, who aligns with your with your vision. I suppose if you are a VC, if you're a, if you're a high growth business, you're not going to go to a VC mm. that that kind of doesn't reflect your values Mm, mm. that's going to raise red flags straight away but i think it's really interesting that she talks about the fact that on this unicorn list 97 percent have have an home office Mm. so this idea that that companies are becoming fully remote in tech doesn't seem to be borne out by the growth businesses that they're seeing across europe at the moment yeah it's funny right because i was having an not an argument i'd say a conversation with someone um heated debate heated debate yeah opinionated conversation um and we were talking about kind of the it industry we were talking about kind of you know product development we were talking about you know kind of developing new softwares these sorts of things and i almost said to him i said you know like seven eight years ago uh, you know agile was the wave right it was all about this camaraderie scrum meetings everyone get up you know mm. it's it's the kind of constant evolution of something throughout the whole kind of process but everyone's everyone's all up in everyone's ear to a certain extent you know there's ideas mm. floating around that sort of thing and i said now even though organizations are saying oh we, we work in an agile environment but oh we're 100 remote i would counter argue that I'm, I'm a recruiter right now I would I would argue that and say you're probably you're probably not as agile as you were seven eight years ago because I just don't think you can get that level of interaction the collaboration and the ideas being sat in you know kind of like this do you, do you know what I mean and it's just like mm-hmm. 
if you look at me and you, for example, this morning, we're doing this remotely. Had we been in the office, we definitely would have been talking about more things. Um, maybe we mm-hmm. would have walked into a room together. Maybe we would have made a coffee beforehand together. There would have been a bit more conversation. There would have been a bit more relationship sort of being built. And I, I just think when it's remote, it's like, right, you know, I jumped on this call. You said we, we had a bit of a chat and then we said, right, let's get into it, you know? So I just think you lose that being 100% remote, in my opinion. But. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think it's really interesting that she talks about, you know, in those high growth cultures, um, people learn from peers as much. It's as much by osmosis. Mm. And I think that's a really good point. Like, um, though that you you know we talk about water cooler moments we talked about water cooler moments to death across technology mm. but it is that kind of just being around people bumping into people random conversations the unintentional but you need to be intentional yeah. about making stuff like that happen you can't just leave it to chance mm. that an environment is going to bring that kind of a an inv- those kind of osmosis moments to the fore yeah yeah no absolutely and and, and I think you need to provide that platform and with organizations and those that run these organizations are the, the most basic platform that they can provide is a is an, a space of working right um yeah yeah disappointing to hear that only six out of the 100 women are uh are female ceo or co-ceos yeah that's that's that shit i'll, I'll, yeah. I'll be honest um, i'm not gonna no point dressing it up, is there? No, exactly. No, I think I think that's that's a shocking number, and, and especially when we think in organisations like, oh, you know, we're forty percent females, fifty percent female. You know, we're doing this, we're doing that. Yet those at the top, you know, six out of a hundred is 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 ridiculous, right? Um, the, the only reason I can think for that is that they're not getting the funding or the backing or the support, like. Mm. There are more than six in a hundred women, uh, you know, six in a hundred. If you, the proportion has to be higher of women who have really fucking good ideas for companies. Mm. I would, I would hazard a guess that that there are many more women than men who have really good yeah. um, ideas for companies because it's generally, you know, if you look at successful founders, they look at problems and they come up with solutions to problems that they see. Yeah, and unfortunately, men have more privilege, therefore women probably see more problems that need fixing. Um, yeah. So, so I reckon there's probably better startup ideas in, in, in the minority communities, in ethnic minority communities, in, in gender minority communities, in sexual minority communities. You know, those people will probably see issues that I wouldn't see because I am privileged and incubated. Yeah. And yet still it's people like me getting the funding and running tech, technology communities yeah. and that, that's bonkers. I know, and it's just, you know, it's one of those things where you you almost want to think, like, you almost want to think what, as bad as it sounds, you don't want it to seem like, oh, there is an intentional block there. But then when you see stats like that, when you see things like that, you almost think, oh, God, like, there is definitely a a blockage, you know, there. Um, Yeah. And 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 it's, it's horrendous. It is actually horrendous because when you look at, like, you know, businesswomen startup founders you know um and you look at how much kind of passion how much clarity how much drive ambition they have um i was listening to another pod- podcast you you know her actually i, th- I think you know her. amelia sordell who uh, yep, yeah yeah, I've, yeah yeah i've met her a few times yeah so i was listening to mm-hmm. her podcast and she was talking about how she kind of you know, was in sales, was in recruitment, and she kind of left and started out her own kind of... She's you know, founder of Clout, right? Clout, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about kind of her struggles and being a female and kind of like, you know, um, actually being part of a, a, a bigger kind of organisation and, and, and doing it all herself and kind of some mm-hmm. of the struggles and whatnot. And she raised some very good points. Um, but I just think it's about like, I, th- I think f- with females, if, especially they see things from a different angle they are able to relate to different problems right um men can i feel, i feel this might, could be a bit generalizing but as a man i sometimes can get quite passionate quite wound up and have that red mist right and i think just giving the chance to females giving the chance to others um is good and, and yeah that that needs to change i think and maybe next year um, what might be good for Sapphire is when they do launch the list again. Um, is it yearly? 
they do the 100. I, believe I, so, I yeah. think so, yeah. It would just be good to see kind of what the stats are next year, really. Mm. Um, hopefully some change. Hopefully. Well, at least double figures. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> but I think, it, I think it's good advice to say, make a plan, who is best, build relationships, stay confident. I have, I have been to Web Summit so many times and seen startups desperately trying to get the attention of a VC, of any VC, of any investor, because they're desperate for money. And they don't have that. I don't feel like there's that plan being made. So I think that that's really good advice. Do, but, do, you, uh, feel, do you feel startups, the, the reason why these CEOs are male, because it's like the boys club and they reach out to their mates for the cash and they think that, oh, because he's an old timer, ex, you know, investment banker, he's going to have all the boys that he plays golf with on a Saturday mornings. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder if the VC community itself is a bit of an old boys club. Mm. I, and that's yeah. not that's not based on any real evidence. So if I'm wrong, feel free to call me but, out. But, no, but I, I also think the VC community is probably, they are a group of privileged people because, mm. you know, as bad as it sounds, but in order to break into a, a VC type of, you know, circle and environment, you've got to have, you've got to have some serious cash, some backing, some clout, yeah. some, you know, kind of recognition behind you. In the same way, when they changed... Um, yeah, real life example, you know, Dragon's Den. So for years, they mm. had the same business investors. And then they obviously started to change him. And then it was like, you know, how how do you break into that circle? Because, you know, who yeah. are you? Do you own a gym? Do you own this? Do you own that? Like, And, you know, Diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett, you know, now a dragon on Dragon's Den. He is a different type of founder. He's a new kind of generation, I suppose, of investor who's got a bit of money to, to invest in. And you would imagine, therefore going to invest in in people from slightly different backgrounds mm. to say and this is no no disparaging comment but a, a peter jones or a what's his Theo face bannantine Theo Pefetus, duncan bannantine deborah meaden yeah. i used to watch it, slightly, back in the slightly day. Different. it. yeah <laughs> great show um i yeah so some some really cool ideas and, and and thinking there i i there's a nice link to the to the interview that comes second in today's show because anas uh, Dr. Anas Nader, I should say, who is an A&E, Deuce of Moonlight, A&E, uh, West Middlesex Hospital when I live around the corner. And I often wondered if I was going to do a podcast with him and then bump into him if something, you know, if I ended up in A&E at the weekend for some reason. But no, it never happened. Um, he uh, he has raised £3 million in Series A in 2020. He's raised £20 million Series B 2022 been all over the news in the last few weeks because of that raise patchwork offer um, a rostering platform for the nhs for or for healthcare staffing flexibility in healthcare um but here annalisa has been talking about how growth businesses and, and 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 financing here we have a business that has gone through that growth over the last couple of years and has got that financing and uh, really interesting as well to listen to uh anas talk about how his role has changed, you know? He's now working through people. So as a leader, he's had to work out where he can add value and where he needs to get out of the way. And I think that that is, again, a piece of intentional thinking about where do I get out of the way? I might be CEO, but there are other people in this business who have better skills in better areas, and that's why I've hired them. Very true. Very true. I mean, Akish, you run a, a number of different initiatives at work. Have you, have you learned to get out of the way? Uh, I've learned to, uh, do you know what I have learned, right? Is I've learned that you can give your opinion, but give your opinion in a way that you're not saying that we are going to do it this way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's like my biggest learn, uh, like learning thing. Um, uh, and, but yeah, it's just, it, you, you can always give your opinion, but then I, I think there's a skill to be like, be making it collaborative to to say as long as it's everyone else is on board with it do you know what i mean um yeah but i think that the the challenge is having having a forum or having an environment where everyone feels comfortable to give your opinion and i think that's if 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 any business leader founder ceo vc whatever if if you if you can nail that like providing a platform or a, or an environment where everyone feels like they can give an opinion and they can have their ideas, you know, at the forefront. I think you've nailed it because then the, the, the richness in ideas and the richness in kind of, um, you know, thought that comes out, I reckon is second to none to be fair. 
inclusion masterclass folks he's here all week um how much how much your consultancy fees oh not yeah that's for free man you can have that one <laughs> thanks for your time this morning uh we'll hand over to anas and we'll be back next week so today i'm lucky to be joined by a guest who's been on the show a couple of times but first first time you were on with us was april 2019 um so dr Anas Nader, welcome back to the show, um, co-founder of Patchwork. How are you? I am well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, the reason that we've got you back will be very transparent. I mean, you're in the news. You've just raised 20 million, part of your Series B funding. So congratulations. That must be both exciting and a relief, I imagine. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 been a, it's been a roller coaster for the last eight months. Um, let's say at least... Um, the company has been quite busy, so for me to be out of my day-to-day um, job focusing on the fundraise has been has been quite intense. It's, be, it's good to be on the other side right now, um, and also, yes, yeah, absolute relief, especially in the you know macroeconomic conditions we're in today. Being able to close a a Series B round, uh, we're very happy with the outcome. Very excited with the new investors who are joining our cap table and our board um, and yeah, all around it's, it's, you know, we're in a, we're in a good place and we're, we're privileged to be here right now. And yeah, I think it's a testimony to the work the team has been putting together for the last few years and the real impact we've been having on our customers. And I think it's a vote of confidence, hopefully from existing and new uh, backers uh, for the things that we want to do in the next few years. Let's let's start by re- retreading over some grounds that we would have covered, obviously, in the first episode three years ago. We've picked up a few listeners since then. So, um, who who are Patchwork? I mean, I guess best way to describe us uh, because of the evolution of, of, of what we've done uh, over the last uh, few years. Best best thing to describe is really we are an end to end workforce management platform um, that empowers clinicians to work more flexibly and help healthcare employers staff their services safely, reliably, and efficiently. Now, we started off in the space of um, temporary staffing, so we brought really flexible working into the NHS and healthcare um, by uh, using using temporary staffing as a vehicle, where doctors and, and nurses can uh, book flexible shifts um, uh, on the bank, the staff bank of the NHS. Um, and over the years, we've evolved from um, what used to be supporting hospitals building their own networks of flexible workers, what we call the local bank, into hospitals creating collaborative banks um, where multiple, uh, where, where there are networks of networks, enabling regional um, providers uh, known in the NHS as ICSs, integrated care systems, but allowing regional, regional providers to create a larger network of um, clinicians to, to create that workforce resilience and, 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 and support, support their staffing needs. Um, the third evolution of our journey in the world of workforce is really bringing all the principles that we've learned from building local banks and collaborative banks um, and the principles we've learned from um, uh, of, of empowering clinicians to work more flexibly from the world of temporary staffing alone to all staffing. And by that, I mean to include permanent staff. Um, I think it's worth to note that about only 20% of all NHS clinicians are temporary staff, about 80% are employed permanently uh, in a substantive role. And while some of these clinicians also work some ad hoc shifts as flexible workers, we want support in how they were rostered and managed in their permanent roles. Um, so that led us to uh, expanding our product offering to start including rostering, uh, rota management, the rostering of permanent staff. So that kind of made us this end-to-end platform that manages permanent staff, um, temporary staff through bank and collaborative bank. Now back in 2019, this is very mean because I can go back and listen to what you said mm-hmm. over three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly bring it into the here and now. But no, you know, it's, it's all, all very much framed by, by the context of the time. You, 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 you were an A&E doctor still, yeah. still covering shifts at West Middlesex at the time. Yeah. Um, and you talked about this almost being a generational issue. You talked about, you know, doctors seeing friends and family who are working remotely, who were working flexibly and being perhaps slightly envious of that. Uh, people who are passionate, but had a slightly different perspective on careers in healthcare. Yeah. Uh, you talked about portfolio careers 
mm-hmm. and how, how people might be looking at, at that as an option and, and hence this ability to to kind of take advantage of temporary arrangements. Yeah. And then about a year later, something fairly major happened that I suppose reframed how the country viewed health workers and how health workers, I, I assume, framed themselves. Yeah. And then we've come out the other side and there's a hell of a lot more flexibility in the world outside of frontline workers. And that may yeah. again have exacerbated some of those initial feelings. How has that, which is all very complex, evolved from where we were back in 2019? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's highlighted what a lot of the industry have already known uh, back in 2019, and that is our healthcare um, institutions um, and their clinicians were already spread quite thin in peacetime. Wartime has just pushed everyone to their limits. Um, and we've seen we've seen quite a lot of clinicians. And I mean, the most recent uh, survey said about one in five doctors are planning to quit the NHS. That's 20% of our workforce planning to leave altogether because of sense of burnout, uh, exhaustion, and frankly, the desire to just take a step back and reassess their priorities. And I've said that in the past, and I say it again, being a clinician, a doctor or a nurse or a therapist does not mean you need to be a martyr to the job. Yes, it's a calling. Yes, it's more than just a, a regular career. At the end of the day, it needs to take, be taken into the context of someone's self-actualization and it shouldn't be, one shouldn't be a victim to a system, if that makes sense. Do you think professionals feel that even more keenly now? Because I suppose, oh, absolutely. I suppose it's almost like people will go, well, hang on, you can't, you can't leave now, which feels... Yeah frankly unfair given given the pressures that people are under yeah no 100 um it's 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 unfair to expect people who are on the verge of burnout or have burnt out um to continue it's unsafe frankly um if you're not if you're a clinician who is who is generally um unable to perform at your best um sometimes taking a step back is the right thing for patients themselves as well um on the macro level, yes, of course, that creates a problem. We have, we already have, have had for years now a staffing crisis, and that's exacerbated by COVID and exacerbated by the backlogs, and of course now exacerbated by um, the bleed in the system when clinicians are leaving. Um, but the answer shouldn't be, you know, bring guilt on individuals who who need to uh, prioritize their their mental health and their wellness um, to be able to. Um, hopefully return to the profession or work more flexibly and, and pare down their hours so that, um, and it's fundamentally that what, what we've been kind of trying to have these conversations with our NHS partners of, of creating new models of working where a clinician can be more selective, um, more flexible in how they work, whether through a temporary model or a permanent, uh, permanent model, um, but really empowering clinicians to, to, to collaborate and co-design the way they work with their employer so that they're able to continue using the stethoscope without having to feel that they're part of a very rigid system and they're a number on a rota um, that doesn't take into account their, their either personal or professional needs. So, so it absolutely is unfair to expect people to be victims or martyrs of a system. And absolutely, um, we need to and should do better in how we give frontline clinicians, frontline workers uh, more options and more choice um, in how they work and where they work and when they work so that we actually retain them. And it's counterintuitive because often people think by allowing people to work more flexibly and more selectively, we, 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 we create more gaps. And, and, and that's, well, that's true in, in the absolute sense of that, of that term. Um, the gaps are worse if the clinician leaves the system altogether and is unable to provide any of their services to the system. And it becomes harder to recruit new clinicians into the system as as system becomes ever increasingly difficult to work with. And if the NHS is to remain the employer of choice for clinicians, it is the biggest employer in the UK, the third or fourth globally. Uh, can't remember where we sit in the rankings now. After Walmart and the and the and the Chinese army, um, somewhere there up at the top three or four employers in the world. Um, but if the answer is to remain that that employer of choice, it 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 it, it needs to evolve in how it um, how it 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 it, it attracts, but also retains its clinicians. 
I mean, the good news is, on on the leadership level within NHS England and NHS UK, um, that is now fully accepted. That flexibility should be the norm, should be the default offering, not by exception. It's not only for parents. It's not only for tends to be like parents who just recently become, you know, it used to be just for moms and dads who are kind of working part-time as look after young ones. Now it's expected to be something that anyone could ask for. Um, and it's accepted as, 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 as wisdom that this is the right thing to do to retain and attract more clinicians. The problem is bringing it from a, a well, um, you know, a well-designed policy or an intention um, is one thing. Turning it into a practical uh, implementation on the ground where hospitals can actually offer flexibility um, is a whole different story. And I think we're still a long way there. When you, when we first spoke, mm. maybe someone could listen to that. And obviously, you obviously you had personal experience, and you were trying to do something that you felt that that your fellow peers yeah. needed. But it might have been viewed as a as a nice to have, a luxury for for clinicians. Whereas now, perhaps, yeah. leaders within hospitals recognise the need for all of the reasons that you've just said. I suppose, from your perspective, it might have made growing the organization an easier door to push at whereas there might have been resistance or more resistance prior to the pandemic and you can tell me if that's wider the mark but has that in turn given you interesting feedback that you might not have had into how the business has evolved into how the team looks at it so whereas before there might have been a little bit of resistance of yeah okay fine doctors want a little bit more flexibility but this is how the system works to okay everything's been turned on its head and we really need to make sure that we don't lose people from the system but this is what we need and therefore perhaps knocking you off course from where you thought it might have gone um there certainly is an element of that for sure it 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 used to be looked at as um in our early days, in 2017, 2018, the first few clients, it used to be looked at as a cost reduction method. Our, our tool and our solutions is about hospitals better employing flexible workers directly and avoiding uh, the expensive agencies that provided locum doctors um, at a premium, right? And, and so whilst everyone really, it was starting, they were starting to talk about flexible working and the benefits of it, Fundamentally, whilst our value proposition for clinicians was flexible working, for most hospitals, it was about we're employing temporary staff. Can we employ them more efficiently and more cost effectively? And, and can we control the process a bit more? So, so really, we're, we're, owning, uh, we're owning these pools of flexible workers rather than relying on agencies. So it used to be more of a cost conversation. And of course, cost is still always a part of the conversation when it comes to the NHS. Uh, appreciating funding is limited and, 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 and you know, um, and, and therefore cost efficiencies will always be part of the conversation. But as you said, um, in the last four, three or four years, it's become increasingly a conversation around um, clinician retention, wellness, and, 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 and really frontline staff thriving in their job rather than just surviving. Um, and, and yes, that led to more honest conversations with hospitals about what actually they need us to do for them to be able to deliver on that promise of flexible working. And by that, I mean, especially the journey on building the rostering platform that allows hospitals to design the rotas and deploy the rotas of permanent staff, which is, as I said, 80% of clinicians. Um, that, was a, that was a very interesting journey that we've been on um, since 2020. So it was heavily, it started in 2020, most of the R&D was heavily in 2021 and, and, and this year, 2022. But the conversation started in 2020. And we, we've created almost a, a, a cohort of NHS trusts, kind of the frontier trust that we were talking to, to and we created kind of an accelerator program where we invited uh, almost a dozen or so hospitals and their stakeholders into virtual workshops to really unpack what does it mean to them to introduce flexible working for permanent staff? And what does the world of rostering need to do? And, and, and why the processes and methods that were deployed in the last 20 years are no longer fit for purpose? What does the world of healthcare look like in 2030? What does the role of a doctor and nurse look like in 2030? 
uh, what is the, where the lines and the boundaries between community health and primary care and secondary care look like and the role of the clinician moving within those systems, uh, within these environments, and, and, and obviously the impact on the patient moving within these environments. And, and really had these kind of conversations, some of it was blue sky thinking, but that was needed because we really need to, to step back and talk about um, how, when, when, when we talk about, when, when, the, when the system has been talking about how care delivery has been evolving, um, and how patient care is changing. Um, we often talk about the outcomes of care. And we often talk about system-level thinking, but very rarely do we talk about how the workforce models need to also match the changes in the care delivery. So it really it meant that we learned a lot more from our hospitals and, and, and their stakeholders, and they got to have conversations with a technology company that is um, coming with certain opinions about the world, but also coming in challenging them as well um, to, I guess, not accept mediocrity, but also for them to question, but why have we been doing it that way? And is this still right? Maybe it was right back in 2010, but is it right for 2020? And is it going to be right for 2030? And I think that really stimulated a lot of interesting conversations. And I would say, I mean, it's, it was the, if you recall from the first conversation we had, one of the pillars, I think, were to our success is our first product was built in partnership with Chelsea Westminster Hospital. It was built from within the hospital as an insider, uh, where I was wearing both hats, the clinician's hat and the manager's hat. Um, and I'm very pleased that we've done the same thing with the second module, with the Rota product, because it, it allowed us to stay true to our to what made us different from day one, um, and allowed us to carry on on that, on that co-designing, co-creation journey with the NHS and with healthcare institutions. Um, Yes, it's a slightly different world that we're in in 2020, and the conversation was slightly different. But the fundamental, um, the fundamental principles that, that that helped us get that product right the first time in, in, for temporary staffing, um, I think, is helping us now get the, the second product right in permanent staffing in the Rota product. Talk there about some of the lessons that the business has learned. In that initial conversation, you, you talked about the challenges, perhaps, of scaling a business. You talked about, you know, if you've got a product and you're scaling it and you're moving from two or three trusts to something that works across the system, that that's, that's a challenge. And at the time, you know, co-founder and CEO, but you hadn't gone through those funding rounds. You hadn't gone through that growth. You, you now have. And so you've, you've seen those challenges. How have you evolved? Um, so... The, the, the company has changed dramatically in the last three, four years. We were, last time we spoke, I think we were a team of 20. We're a team of 120 now. I think we had three uh, enterprise customers. Now we, we work with, I think, close to 30. Um, so that meant everything that we I was doing back then, I can carry on doing. I was jack of all trades. I was kind of leading the product journey. I was leading... On most of the um, commercial conversations, um, and occasionally even on the customer care conversations, and I'm obviously now uh, working with some incredible people that have joined us since then, uh, and working through them rather than working directly in some of the outcomes. And that meant I had to change how I do things, and I had to approach things differently. And I think for me personally, the challenge was always questioning the kind of um, leader I needed to be and where I can add value and where I need to get out of the way of other people who need to add value. And that had to be a conversation that I had to have with my co-founder and my, my leadership team, but really with the wider business constantly. And I think I had to rewrite my own JD every six, 12 months because the expectations for me had evolved. My role has evolved and I needed to, um, I, I needed to fulfill the, the new role that, that, that I wasn't ever prepared for. And, and there is no course for that. There's no book for that. I can tell you, I mean, there are amazing, um, you know, people to learn from whether, whether leadership, books and podcasts, whether some mentors and executive coaches I spoke to. But fundamentally, every business is unique. Every team is unique. Um, and 
there is a certain element of figuring out our playbook whilst learning other people's playbooks is very helpful. Reading other people's playbooks is very, there are lessons to be learned there and, and, and some things can be replicated, but fundamentally each company has its own playbook and I had to figure out a patchwork playbook to scale, to build great products and sell great products and look after clients post, post go live. And I think that playbook was, was obviously a collaboration across the business, um, but it's something that I had to always challenge myself and challenge the team to, to really appreciate what is it that we need to do um, that made it unique and what is it that we can learn from others. On a personal level, it just meant that um, I had to go through my own um, dilemmas where there are certain things I, I had to get better at delegating um, and letting go off, despite loving doing them, and I had to do things that you know wasn't really my my forte. wasn't thing that I would have been excited about, but it's just something that has to be done. If you're the CEO of a 120 people company, there are things that you have to do that might not be the most exciting things, but it's just part of the job. Um, certainly had to had to had to had to pick up some additional skills I didn't have uh, back back in my doctor years. So yeah. It's, it's, it's an ever-evolving job description, I guess, and will continue to evolve in the coming months and years. And look, that is, is an interesting last point, perhaps, because I think any founder out there would, would, would want to tap into your knowledge here. You talked about expectations. I imagine you're talking about expectations you place on yourself, but also expectations the business places on itself and challenges that you need to meet. Obviously, now you have expectations from an external um, source in in the form of investment and and obviously with yeah. that comes lots of advice and lots of knowledge that you can tap into as you've kind of alluded to but what yeah. what is what is that like in terms of having the expectation of people who have put money into your business this thing that you you conceived you grew you scaled and now there is that external factor absolutely and and i think the um the stakes are much higher when the investment quantum grows and certainly this being our biggest raise, um, it definitely comes with a lot of enablement. There's a reason why 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 uh, businesses raise investment from VCs or PEs is primarily to allow them to do the things at pace that, that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I think my advice on that is, first of all, be highly selective with the investors that you bring on, the partners you bring on. I think it's really important to be aligned on... On, on the values of the business and the mission of the business and be really aligned on how the board operates and the culture of the board itself. Often companies talk about the culture of the business and very few founders put enough attention on the culture of the board itself and the people you bring into the board. So a real being really selective on that ensures that you hopefully bring on the partners who who 10x the business rather than rather than take the business in the wrong direction. The second thing I would say is really build um, an honest and open partnership and relationship with your fellow board members and your institutional investors, because fundamentally um, they're backing the management team, no matter how big the business is. I know the, the, the old wisdom used to be at the very early stage, they're backing the founders. And after that, they're backing the business. They're still always backing the management team. They're still backing the team that they recognize will hopefully get have the batting average quite high and hopefully we'll get most things right, but sometimes get some things wrong. But that's the team that when they get it wrong, they'll figure it out and turn it around. Um, and the best way to maintain that relationship is honesty and trust. And therefore, the more honest the relationship is with your institutional investors, the more likely they are to maintain that trust and the more likely they are to be supportive when things don't go right and don't go well, rather than um, become a bit more interventionist. And I think, I think that's kind of my advice. Be selective you bring on and once, you, once they join your, your partnership to, to, to start with openness and, and, and honesty in the conversation um, to maintain that trust. Well, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you for for coming back and, and giving us an update. It's, it's great when you when we obviously are in this position that we have talked to someone years ago and, and you've, you've had the success and scaled. I, I hope it continues to, to go in that upward trajectory. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure again. And yeah, always happy to come back again. 
Saúde e Tapia.